Welcome to the Naked Hour podcast. This is a experimental recording, and we're gonna see if we can um, get some really good content out of Clubhouse because uh, it's just been it's been crazy uh, on Clubhouse since uh, probably the last two weeks at this point. I've had some amazing conversations with amazing people from all the different kinds of background. Um, we have James and Tommy here, so maybe you guys can speak. Welcome, Tommy. Hey guys. Um, yeah, I, I resonate with what you said. For context, uh, Sanjana had a humongous room earlier today, and uh, I can hear it in your voice, and I, I feel it too. It was tiring. If you talk this much and are constantly thinking, constantly engage uh, deeply, then it takes a little bit of toll out of you, but it, it charges you equally. Welcome, Daniel. Um, I want to just say a few things real quick because I might not be able to be here that long. Um, I just noticed that it's interesting once I know that this is being recorded maybe I'll speak a little bit differently. And I find that is probably something other people might feel as well. Um, a lot of the rooms, you don't know if people are recording or not. Uh, you're supposed to get people's consent for recording, but that's not to say everyone is a good actor. Um, so even then, people kind of trust each other and they kind of let their guard down. And I think some of the sincerity and authenticity comes from the fact that their conversation is most likely ephemeral, right? Not recorded. And I think people like the idea of being able to change their minds later on so they're not held accountable for, for like even the tiniest, you know, mistakes. Maybe I quoted some author wrong when I was talking about a book or something like that. I think that relaxed expectation where you're not held up to a standard uh, really helps people kind of bond with each other. I think that's what I'll leave uh, this dialogue with. So I uh, hope you guys have a good talk. I'm going to move myself to the audience. Well, I think even the, I don't think we live in an age where nothing is being recorded. Everything is being recorded. We just have a little dialogue that says recording and the idea that everything is not permanently set out somewhere, especially on the internet. Like this isn't an age of impermanence. Like, everything on the internet seems to be permanent it's just this room is just saying hey we're recording just letting you all know what you already knew that's interesting very true indeed um i was wondering what the topic of discussion should be so tommy do you have anything in mind um um uh, well as as a jokingly i was thinking of uh, all the topics that should be brought up on record uh, as you were asking what we should talk about. So I'm trying not to say specifically the things. Uh, I had this weird uh, experience with uh, Eric Weinstein. Uh, he was uh, on IG Live a couple of months ago. And uh, when I joined him, I, I was surprised, and uh, this is replying to James. And that was my first time actually sitting with them and and this feeling of, okay, I, I could ask him about the Epstein situation because he is from LA. He has some insight. He, he knows a little bit more about it. You can see that he's more reclusive with uh, the sensitive uh, issues on other podcasts. But I might might be better off not asking it. Uh, so yeah, I, I can relate to, to the feeling. Um, no, I, I don't have anything specific. What about you, Sanjana? So I was just in a room with Brett Weinstein and Lex Friedman, and the topic was, um, you know, about whether the virus is a lab leak or it's a zootonic virus. 
And so I was wondering maybe we can, you know, talk about it and share our own opinions. Um, I mean, for me, I remember when this wires broke out, um, I kind of was really sure that it was a lab leak. And at that time, this whole concept was very controversial because of its um, racist implications towards China and the Chinese people. Um, and then the whole thing that lab leak just means Chinese people are trying to uh, get others or something like that. And now when during one of my classes last semester, I was in this ethics and morals class with this professor and we were talking about this virus and I openly said that I'm pretty sure it's a lab leak. And he was, you know, quick to shut me down because he he said that there's a there's many political implications to what you're saying. And at that time, you know, it was very difficult to talk about something like a lab leak, even though it's highly, highly possible. I mean, the Wuhan lab is right there. So I I just don't get why people don't see this as a viable hypothesis. And now that, you know, almost like a year in into this pandemic now people are okay with it because how it just the whole COVID thing has become desensitized I don't know what you think about it Tommy um the whole lab leak or zootonic virus theory um as much as I like to ponder on stuff I have no actual opinion on this I got an opinion on it. I The thing that I thought, because I just left that room, was I can't believe no one's bringing up, they always bring up the political interest, but they never bring up the financial interest into, like, what a bad relationship with China would look like. Because, you know, if you have a lab leak, you're going to think differently about where you're getting things made at. You know, the, the whole problem in America was, like, when the virus hit, everyone was freaking out because no one was going to get any medicine. I remember they were saying, like, if you have a pharmaceutical drug, we make it all in China. So you're going to have to stock up quick before things get out. And there was a huge supply breakdown. It didn't culminate into anything. It was a lot of fear mongering. But that is a, a big thing that I'm surprised didn't get brought up. I mean, if you question whether China did release the virus, then you question whether it's okay for us to continue to send everything over to china like do we have to have everything made by china like one of the things that happened was um we had a mask shortage because everyone was like we have to get masks like and Fauci said masks don't work and it was because he wanted to make sure frontline workers did it and apparently the reason why the president didn't do the um defense authorization act was because all these financial interests were like hey, dude, you can't do that because that will mess up our supply chain with China. That's why they didn't order factories to manufacture masks and things like that, which seems kind of absurd when you think, like, dude, it's a pandemic. What are you doing? But, like, there is this breakdown. Like, there's so much money in putting everything into China. And that is what I think the lab leak hypothesis kind of, like, the consequence of it being true would be that it makes you question whether we should have everything made in China. We should have all the factories, all the supplies made in China. And I think that's something that I'm surprised I didn't bring up in the talk was how much money Bloomberg puts into it, how much money like everyone, every political entity in America puts so much money into China to do everything. And it's for the better or for worse, you know, but that, that's just the reality of what's happening. I'm just surprised that they didn't, they didn't bring up that aspect to it because I thought that was the biggest story was like if you question whether China did make the virus, then you question whether we should continue having the same normalized trade relations with them. And I think that was something that was missed. But yeah, that's all I got. No, true. I feel like this whole lab leak hypothesis, again, you know, it could be zootonic. I don't think there's any substantial or any sort of direct evidence that this is a zootonic virus. And I don't think we also have any evidence for lab leak as of yet. So these, both of these hypotheses, they're just hypotheses, you know, they're not um, true in any way, at least for now. 
So, and of course, you know, the whole mismanagement of this whole COVID situation, um, it's not often talked about um, because, you know, as you said that Fauci was saying back probably in April that masks don't work, that caused so much disruption within the society in general. It had so many implications because due to that, maybe maybe a lot of people died just because of him going on, on, you know, like whatever traditional media outlet he was speaking to and just saying that I don't think masks work anymore. And also like the whole conflicting information that WHO was giving out. And so in that way, one can say, you know, the U.S. government was right in a way to back out of WHO because it got them back into, you know, their whole maintaining their own integrity. And so I hope, you know, now they investigate the situation well. But I feel like throughout countries, this whole COVID situation was pretty much mismanaged, if anything. I mean, I don't know what um, management looked like in you guys' country. Maybe you can share that. Hungary is, uh, is a weird place. Uh, uh, one of my good friends is uh, writing his dissertation on how uh, Hungary's a country that has uh, this multi uh, bipolar um, belonging to the east and west. So we have some uh, deep roots in, in both directions, and and, and you can kind of sense that on the streets if you talk to people. And uh, his reasoning is uh, that we didn't have a, uh, a revolution where the people were against the governments. And, and so what we call uh, our nation and nationality hasn't separated itself or, or matured enough to, to be an independent entity from the government itself. So in Hungary, if you say that you stand with the country, it's, uh, it's equal uh, to you saying that you stand with the government. So it's, uh, it's this odd place where, uh, yeah, ha- having a, a national identity uh, orients you politically as well. That being said, uh, it, we are closer to the Eastern way of, uh, of governing. And what that means is we don't really have a, a, a say in, in anything. And, and it's, they, they, they communicate and, and uh, say anything that will yield more uh, boomer and elderly voters. So it's not really um, a progressive way of, of creating the situation. And a lot of propaganda, a lot of um, uh, just one-way communication, empty, empty words. So Hungary is is not the most efficient in, in dealing with the situation at all. What about you, Daniel? I'm in the U.S., so like everything in America, it becomes stupid culture wars and it was either COVID is the worst thing and it's going to kill everybody or COVID is like it doesn't really exist and it's a complete lie like I used to work in a newsroom with a lot of people down south I'm in Virginia and southern you know southern small towns are known for being very conservative and I just watched all their brains break and they were just like COVID is clearly not real and for my take at least my thought on COVID was that like it's bad but it's not literally the worst thing like i I think there was a lot of like mismanagement fear-mongering like especially in state it's like california and like michigan michigan would have all these weird draconian rules like you couldn't go to a park um you couldn't do certain you, you couldn't even go to a park which i thought was crazy you couldn't go out on a boat you couldn't go to your second home if you had a second home and some of it did seem overly draconian, which is kind of what 
how America deals with everything is like, let's get Hebelian. And then when things get screwed up because people can't work, we're not going to give them any money because it's their fault. And that's basically what America did, like terrible relief packages that were crazy mismanaged. Like you ended up with all these like, oh, God, it was so stupid. Like you couldn't even have a second COVID relief check in the middle of the summer because the Democrats and Republicans couldn't agree on anything. Like it's a mess. It's definitely a mess. And it's just kind of the way it's like living in a a country with two narratives that are like so opposed that like nothing makes sense and nothing gets done. It's like, it's like almost like schizophrenic thinking. Like you have four years or whatever years of whichever party dominating. And then the next eight years, it's a completely different narrative and you just keep rinsing and washing it. And it's kind of absurd when you think about it because they never agree on anything except for like, draconian rules and you can't really help people that much and that that's it's kind of weird and that's just and it played out with covid too which is why you had more deaths you had i mean the debt bubbles that are going to be exploding once this thing's all over i don't even think they even realize how bad it is i work in insurance and you'd have people calling up that haven't worked since june and they just ran out of relief money and they have no money and they're doing all these crazy payment plans and it got so bad that like we couldn't keep up with all the payment plans as in our company couldn't manage them and it led to huge you know debt bubbles just blowing up and it's weird i mean if you're in another country like australia where they took care of your canada like you they don't really people don't realize how lucky they were like they were very lucky like in america it was like can't do anything it, because it would create a moral hazard or something crazy like that. And th- that's pretty much how it went. It was just a, a big mess. Big. Yeah, I think New Zealand is back to normal pretty much now. Like, I was just in this room yesterday, and someone from New Zealand was there, and he said that they haven't had any strict lockdown in a very long time. Um, so, yeah, maybe we can now talk about what when do people think things are going to become normal? Because from what I perceive as of the moment is that with the ongoing vaccination process, and especially because it's two doses, and, and there's a huge population that like we have to vaccinate, I feel like it's probably going to take five or six months till we get to a certain percentage of saying that almost most of the population is vaccinated or, you know, close to being vaccinated. So I was wondering what you guys think about what's what, what do you think is the normal right now and how it's going to be, how the normal is going to be different when actually things start to open up? I think July. But the significant weakness is that because the vaccines expire and you have so many rural communities without refrigeration it might take longer at least in the u.s i I think july is probably when we'll we'll get the vaccination process done it's just a logistical nightmare because of you have a lot of hospitals that don't have the refrigeration down in poor rural communities like the cities will probably get it pretty quick but i think it's gonna it's gonna be a mess just like everything's been with this whole thing pretty wacky um it's tricky because i don't know if uh sinjana you had time uh, in between conversations to listen to eric's uh talk with lex uh that came out yesterday i did Um, actually i was watching it um in between jumping to different groups Jesus Christ. Okay, so he he mentioned that uh, that he coined the phrase uh, USAN, United States of, States of absolutely nothing, and and his theory or idea was uh, that the U.S. government is uh, a, a little fragmented since the war, and. There's this guy uh, who's now on Clubhouse, Dr. Stephen Greer. He's, uh, you might know him as the UFO guy. 
he is a, an emergency doctor who uncovers these uh, highly classified documents. And the way he does it is uh, whistleblowers come to him and, and report their clearance and what they were working on and share the documents. And in exchange, he gives them some form of publicity because at, at this point, it kind of snowballed into this huge organized uh, uncovering of the uh, the fragmentation of clearance systems. And the funky thing with this entire thing is that now we know that even if you are the president, there are God knows how many uh, clearance structures that that person doesn't have access to. So I think this is what Eric was referring to because there is no real communication between the different parts and departments of, uh, of government or entities of power. And the entire assumption that uh, someone intentionally created the virus situation uh, is, is an easy way but it's so um, complicated and connected that even if someone intentionally uh, created the issue, it, it could easily trickle down as something that hurts the given uh, person or group of people. True, I mean, like I was wondering what books you guys were reading during the crazy lockdown, at least the first three months of complete worldwide shutdown. Like I used, I used to read Albert Camus a lot, and especially The Plague, because it was just, you know, it was as if it was reality at that point. And also like Myth of Sisyphus. And Myth of Sisyphus made so much more sense because it's essentially a metaphor, right? And it represents this thing that we're every day waking up and doing the same thing again and again and again. And that's a never-ending cycle. And so Sisyphus was cursed by Zeus to move this huge circular stone up the mountain continuously for eternity um, under Hades. And so in that way, it, it, it represents that, you know, suffering or happiness and all of these things just ongoing and that the whole human existence is highly dynamic and ever-moving and ever-changing and going forward continuously. Um, and the plague was just, uh, it made so much more sense because it talked about how in times of crisis, people and human behavior essentially changes in the most radical way possible. Um, what are the, some of the books or some of the podcasts maybe you guys were listening to um, during the lockdown? I, I've read a, a, a couple of good ones uh, and listened to some on Audible. I don't know if you guys uh, use it. I, I enjoy it a lot. Um, the David Goggins' Can't Hurt Me was amazing. Uh, there was uh, another one by uh, the co-founder of Square, The the guy is Jim McKelvey, and the book is called uh, Innovation Stack. And it's super interesting how, uh, if you don't know the story, they got into the payment processing business. And uh, not so uh, long after uh, they got into industry, Amazon started competing with them. And Amazon is famous for beating all the industries uh, that they enter. And in this case, Square is the only company that beat them. And he explains the way they did it, and that's the topic of the book. They stacked a number of innovations uh, 
in order to be irreplicable. They couldn't replicate them. (laughs) And, And the other interesting thing about the book was Jim was in this uh, interesting place where he didn't really have uh, mentors, especially uh, in the financial sector who wanted to innovate the industry in a way where uh, they took care of the little guy. And and he started searching and then he found uh, uh, a guy by the name of A.P. Giannini who founded the Bank of Italy back in the early 20th century. And he, first of all, it it was interesting how he found a mentor almost a century apart from him. Second, uh, how he recognized the pattern and how he he looked for him. And and yeah, it's it's a century apart, but he he replicated the the philosophy and, and the method of, uh, of innovation. So that was interesting. What about you, Daniel? What did I read before the whole thing? Um, well, I know, I remember what I was reading when I first, when COVID first hit, which I found hilarious. I couldn't stop laughing about it. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to go read, I got a modern translation of the Bible. I was like, well, let, let's read what this thing's all about. Not because I'm particularly religious or anything like that. I just wanted to, you know, it's like the cornerstone of like Western thought, blah, blah, blah. And I got to like the end of Daniel where it talks about this plague screwing everything up and then COVID hit. And I found that so funny. I was like, this is hilarious. Like, um, so I was reading that and I finished through that. And it was, it's an interesting read. I, I think people should read it at least to get understanding of like, there were so many references that I didn't realize were biblical and it was it was from there, and that was kind of cool. Like a lot of different references to like pop culture things and, and things of that aspect that in a, wasn't aware had its origins in the Bible. Um, then I started reading a lot of Robert Anton Wilson, which is about you know psychedelics and like the idea of how people have different realities and how you form your own reality and your own narrative. And then I read a lot of mindfulness meditation stuff tibetan book of the dead all that and it was about you know just living in the present moment and how to turn off your thinking brain so you can have a a more um meaningful life because if you think about things you create stories and you get stuck in stories instead of just appreciating moments and just understanding that existence isn't really all about just making sense of it it's about kind of being in it rather than just trudging through life, you know, thinking about, um, uh, like, a, a way to make sense of everything. It's more about, not in, like, a nihilistic sense, but it's like, you know, you should be focused on turning your car on, not thinking about, like, your girlfriend. Or, like, you should be focused on making dinner, not thinking about politics and things like that. And that's what I was reading during it. And then I read about the Spanish Civil War, which was bleak as hell. But that was, that was pretty much what I was reading. How do you guys um, uh, uh, balance the the joy of it all? Like uh, so far, the conversation was uh, pretty much focused on the the serious stuff. And how how do you bring joy and and uh, alleviate the gravity of the matters that you're dealing with? Because Tel Aviv is a is a fun place for sure. Yeah, but like now, just because like pre-COVID, it was, it's it's an amazing city, you know. Pre-COVID, it was just amazing, but now just with all the lockdowns, I like what what I do is essentially just take a walk or maybe three walks a day, um, and and try to walk as far as I can. Maybe go to the beach, um, but I feel like you know, it's it it seems to me that all the towns have become what you can call a ghost town where people are living but not really because everything is shut down and all the things that you could be doing you can't you can't do and so you're not doing them like living in Tel Aviv is just 
it's such a great city, but now just because of the whole COVID situation, I feel like it's not as fun anymore because so many restrictions, you can't go out out of, like, I don't think there's a current um, lockdown, but I don't think you can take flights anymore till March 6th. And they keep extending these days and, and this possibility that if you leave the country, you'll probably not be able to come back. So there's definitely a lot of restrictions and that's kind of limiting the fun, really. But what me and my friends do, essentially, we just, because we li- we all just live quite close to each other, so we're able to um, just take time out and just like hang out in some park for some time. Of course, there's like regulations around masks and everything, so we do follow that. Um, but again, it's not, I feel like, it is sort of fun but it's just become so like i've just become so desensitized from the normal reality that i just don't even know um what it's gonna look like when everything basically opens up is surfing allowed it is but i think these days just because of the whole rain situation they they're not allowing it anymore but yeah to a certain um extent like to a certain uh point they allow it uh i i've been there i think two years ago uh around the same time late february um water was decent so you could you could surf uh at that time that's what i'm asking what about you daniel how do you balance the weight of serious stuff. Well, it seems like everything's going back to COVID. I mean, when COVID hit, me and my friend, we just worked on, uh, we would meet every week and we would work on creative projects. We actually wrote a movie and then he directed it during the lockdown. Wow. Yeah. we, We wanted like, uh, we got in a film festival, which was pretty cool. Congrats. I know. So we did, like, creative. I mean, that's what I typically do. If it's too serious, I just turn it into a joke. That's my coping mechanism is just, you know, you have to find the humor and the absurdity or you're just going to be, like, perpetually depressed and angry. And it's, it's not productive. It's, I don't know. That's the thing about comedy, though. Comedy is, you know, revolutionary in the sense that it's always able to pinpoint the the reality of, of you know, uh, of situation within a social context, a religious context, any context, um, through subtlety or, you can say, uh, humor. And so it's always able to, you know... Re- tell you exactly what is going on it's able to show you the real but but with a mask you know um and so i usually i used to watch a lot of um comedy stand-ups and podcasts um one of my favorite comedians is probably tim dylan right now he's just um too good um the other is tio one um i mean joe rogan is decent but i feel like i like him more as a podcaster than as a stand-up comedian um bobby lee is hilarious um there's there's many you know um maybe you guys can tell me what who your favorite comedians are um i love uh andrew schultz i think he's hilarious and he managed the the uh the lockdowns I, i think the perfect way because he transformed his uh, um, stand-up sessions uh, into in-studio skits, and he he managed to to condense the jokes into such a fast pace where uh, even if you're scrolling on Instagram, you you at least catch three punchlines and. Oh my god, it's it's amazing. Highly recommend uh, his his stuff. But yeah, Joe Joe Rogan. It, it's weird uh, to look at him 
from these uh, multiple intelligence lines perspective. He isn't that good of a stand-up comedian, uh, in my opinion as well. But he's a very good conversationalist. I, I think I would have to, if I had to pick my favorite, probably my favorite comedian is probably Dave Chappelle. I, I think he has the most hard-hitting satire, while at the same time being able to make very serious subjects funny. I really like Dave Chappelle a lot. Um, I think he's probably the, at least the best American comedian that we've had in a while. Um, I never got the big deal about Joe Rogan's stand-up. It's not that funny. He's not that good of a stand-up comedian. I, I don't know. It, he's better at doing the podcasting. Like, I love his podcast. Because he just kind of lets people go on their crazy rants, and he just lets them go, and you, you learn interesting things. He doesn't really push back, which I, I think can be kind of a problem because some of his guests, like, they have very naive views of the world and stuff, and, like, he kind of lets them, like, bulldoze him in a way because he doesn't really have an opinion. But it's still cool to get the other side of it. I just have a question about you. You guys are not from. Uh, uh, you guys aren't from English-speaking countries. Do you guys? Because I vaguely know Spanish. Do you guys think? And like for me, example, when I know a little Spanish. So whenever someone speaks Spanish around me, it's like I filter it through my head into Spanish, and then it, I think in English, and then I reply to it. Do you guys think in English? because you're that proficient at it, as in you've been speaking it for a lot longer, or do you guys still speak in your native um, language and then interpret, translate it in your brain and then speak it in English? Just yeah, it, Interesting you ask. Uh, we, we touched on this uh, earlier in the previous conversation, and um, the, the brief answer is yeah and no. So I... I, my uh, base language is Hungarian and it has a little bit different semantic structure than English uh, so we have uh, these adages at the end of the, the words in order to, to shape the context of them and so you can stack uh, these relational uh, objects onto each other to make the meaning a little bit more complex, make it a little bit different. Uh, I think this is similar to Chinese a little bit, but uh, the way I speak English uh, is kind of using the abstractions of Hungarian in order to construct sentences. But I, I don't necessarily think in Hungarian. I, I just emulate the, the semantics of it. True, even I would agree to that. Like, I'm bilingual, so, like, I always have this problem that when I start speaking one language, which is nowadays English usually, that's the one that I would think in, write in, and just, like, completely dissolve myself into. But then when I go back to, let's say, India, and now I have to speak Hindi, uh, it takes me almost a month to, first of all, start speaking that language again, with that, you know, um, f uh, fluidity, not even fluidity, fluently. And so for that, it, it requires like almost a month of me just conversing and like actively listening to people speak in that language. And and then I can, you know, start maybe thinking at some point and, and that. And I, and I feel like it's like a bilingual problem because in bilingual, but it's very attached to time and like the amount or the period of time you actually spend um, talking and thinking in that language. Like when people say that they know three or four languages and let's say someone from Belgium uh, and they're speaking French and, and also maybe German and, and also maybe they're Spanish. So they're speaking all these three languages maybe on a daily basis. So maybe that's, you know, that's the person we should be asking this question to that what language are you thinking in when you're speaking three different languages almost on a very daily basis? Uh, Tommy, you were mentioning something about Hungarian. So what do the different endings do? Because in English, it's like 
you put an S for plural, and then you do the you know past tense, present tense, and things of that. What are what, do you, what did you mean by that? Like you could take a word and add a different ending to change like the context of the word. I just think that's interesting. I just want some idea of what that. that. So let's say um, the things that you would normally uh, say with separate words in English, like uh, from hungry or too hungry it's it's actually just you you add three letters to hungry and then that signifies uh from hungry you know what i'm saying so it's a um yeah it's it's like this huh that's interesting so like the word hungry based on the way you said it, say it has a different context. That's interesting. That, that isn't really like English. English doesn't really have it like that. It's usually like this, you know, different words. You don't have like, United States doesn't change meaning to mean a different thing or to present your origin from being the US or being outside the US. It's always separate words. It's, that's interesting. Very economical, word-wise, I guess. You know, I, I told you that we we are uh, with one leg standing in the communist uh, east, so because the language uh, just oh, indicates that. Like one thing that I noticed throughout this whole um, pandemic was that we're moving very fast towards virtuality. And so I was wondering what do you guys think about the current artificial intelligence that we have? And also, you know, Nick Bostrom's conceptualization of an AGI versus an ASI, where AGI is the general intelligence, whereas ASI has this super intelligence. And the essence of this general intelligence is meta reasoning or general reasoning, just as compared, just the same level of reasoning that humans have uh, replicated on a machine. So I was wondering what do you guys think about the whole AI situation right now and what's probably going to look like in the future? Um, this, uh, as much as I'm, um, I, I was hoping to have a lighthearted conversation, if we keep coming back to these heavy, heavy topics, um, I don't know. Um, what about you, Daniel? I'm skeptical about how far we can push it um the only thing that i and i'm not a big ai technology guy to be honest but the one thing i do see think is interesting is the ones where they have ai that can learn to walk and the program teaches itself to walk but i don't know how it would be able to reach a complexity where it could actively adapt to situations or whether it could like actually change and evolve like a human can do that. I mean, I mean, if you think about how complex every interaction we do is, and you have like a piece of programming that's going to figure out how to do it, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know how the AI is going to be able to accomplish a simple task like waking up to make coffee every morning when the variables can change, you know, how can it adapt to various changes and things like that? I'm just skeptical of it. I, I bet it's going to like disrupt a lot of easy jobs not easy jobs but like human jobs in general like i bet most bank most bank jobs will just become robots like paralegals are being replaced by machines which i think is crazy um what else is truck drivers that will probably go the wayside you don't need a truck driver anymore you're gonna have ai do it like there are things that's gonna be disrupted but whether it'll reach the level where like i'll be able to buy a robot person and robot person will learn how to cater to me based on like moods and all the different variables i don't, I don't know when we'll reach that level they've been saying that forever that we were going to have robots like r2d2 or like things like that they, they've always been saying that since like the 70s my dad was telling me that they would always say like robots will take all of your jobs and they've been repeating this hard line since the industrial or I'm sorry, not the Industrial Revolution, what am I talking about? Since, like, post-World War II, and it just hasn't happened. But I don't know, it could. It's interesting. I don't, I don't really think about it that much, though. 
Sanjana, from the way you've phrased, uh, from the way you've phrased the question, uh, I, I think you have uh, a swing at the answer. I mean, I'm always very, very skeptical and critical of Nick Bostrom because I still feel like the AI that we currently have isn't that good. I mean, look at the whole autocorrect situation within the iOS. It's ridiculous. And if that's the kind of AI we have right now, and almost, you know, next to nothing, NLP and ML, so natu natural learning um, processing, and um, the other one is machine learning. So these things are still, you know, almost backwards. Like they're, they're not as efficient enough as we would need to even start to think about like a, <clears throat> sorry, to even start to conceptualize something like in, like a super intelligence. So I think it's it's kind of ridiculous that Nick Bostrom is, you know, going after this whole concept of ASI and people even try to, you know, entertain these ideas of an ASI. I mean, we don't even have an AGI yet, so ASI is looking way far into the future. Um, so, I mean, just by looking at this whole AI situation, um, another thing that often pops up is this whole thing with cryptocurrency and, and how it's now becoming a thing. And it could be, you know, the currency of the future um, one thing that I've noticed um, within the whole cryptocurrency situation at the moment is that it it's been in it's being influenced by power. So of course, all respect to Elon Musk and everything, but whenever he tweets out Bitcoin or Dogecoin, it always goes up. The value goes up. So to what extent is that manipulation? You know, um, and and raising a certain currency based on popular. Um, person advocating it and so in that way I feel like it's 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 a very twisted and a very weird thing to even try to think that it, we can invest in it and then see this currency go ahead because we were seeing like a rise in Bitcoin and then one day when the whole Dogecoin thing happened um, you know Doge increased rapidly I mean even even though it's a meme that one Doge is one Doge you know, there's still the value went all the way up and it could be the currency, you know, the next big currency after Bitcoin and Ethereum. So I was wondering, have you guys started thinking about investing in cryptocurrency or just your general viewpoints about um, what cryptocurrency looks like right now and maybe what, you know, its future is potentially going to be? Good yeah, man. No, you go ahead. I'll let you go. Okay. So I bought some uh, Ethereum and uh, Bitcoin back in November and or October. And I, I thought I, I, I missed the show. And since then, it, it grew uh, well. So uh, I, I couldn't name the percentage since uh, it, it dipped in the past couple of days uh, but it's definitely a long term uh, alternative the this is the thing I would use the AI for if I was in, in uh, a position to choose to, to come up with uh, uh, a more manageable and, and more decentralized alternative infrastructure for finance on the long run and and I would uh, um, ask the AI to to weigh the uh, the uh, um, slippery slope of how humans perceive value and and, and, and do something with this mystery uh, when coming up with an answer. So clearly the Federal Reserve is not the best uh, go-to institution for handling it. And since Bitcoins only have relative value to the dollar, it's, it's another, another tricky, tricky thing. It, it looks great, 
but uh, I'm not sure how viable it is uh, on a global scale. It's kind of weird watching it because I remember when Bitcoin first came out and it was associated with things like the Silk Road. So it was basically a way for like drug dealers to launder money and keep it from being their assets being known about. And now it's becoming this this it's becoming legitimized, which I, I find to be really fascinating to watch. Um, I, I think it, I, I don't really take it too seriously. I mean, until financial institute like your grocery store, your or your like, you know, gas station takes it seriously. It's it's not really. It's kind of like gold, you know. It's like a way for like people who have like a certain ideology, like a libertarian ideology. They're always saying the dollar's going to crash. You know, it's just it's almost like a way to monetize them and to like give them something to, to pour their money into. And you know, it'll, it'll. I just I'm very skeptical of it. I, I don't think it's. It's just going to be like another weird currency. I don't see it replacing like the dollar or getting rid of like central banking. You know, in fact, it could just it could run to the same pitfalls that that gold ran into. People always talk about how we should go back on the gold standard, but the gold standard is incredibly volatile because it's you know there are all these problems with gold when it comes to. Um, I don't want to go into all the details. It would drive me crazy and I can't remember them but there are there are tons of problems with gold and I don't see how Bitcoin couldn't run into the same problems I mean you would be stuck in the moods of how people think even worse than you would if you had like if you like the stock market one day people would be like oh Bitcoin's great and then they would pull out of it and then they would think oh Bitcoin's great and then they'd pull out of it and it would constantly fluctuate and deflate and inflate which is what it's doing now so I mean it does seem it doesn't seem like a stable currency. I don't see it really being anything more than just kind of a, a novelty or a way to you know stick it to the government or something like that. Um, that's just my thoughts on it. Maybe you guys know more than me, and maybe I'm just being overly pessimistic. But I'm I'm highly skeptical of those kinds of currencies. No, I mean even I am highly skeptical because you know our world is ever changing it's highly dynamic so of course if cryptocurrency is this decentralized mechanism then it's probably going to be popular for a few years and then we're going to have the next big thing and then we're going to have the next big thing and so on and so on and so it's a never-ending cycle with bitcoin or any types of currency and value that we'll see within our civilization emerge um, well, this has been a really good podcast so far. Like, it's been 56 minutes, and I think we should probably end it here. Um, and it's been a pleasure talking to Tommy and Daniel here. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation just as much as I did. Um, I'll be posting this maybe tonight, actually, and I'll let, send you guys the link and so you guys can access it as well. Um, but yeah, thank you for participating in this episode. Thanks for hosting it. And thanks, Daniel. Cool talk. Oh, that's why we were recording. Now I know why we're recording. I'm going to be on the internet somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks. Just later. You too. So I stopped recording, and so I'm going, guys. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Take care, everyone. <laughs>